The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. All right, let's open our Bibles to Matthew 14. I think one of the most difficult things about being a believer at times is knowing that we are constantly out of step with this world. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is not here. Our home is in heaven with the Lord. And therefore, as believers, I know you know this, we don't fit here. This place is not our home. And so often as a believer, we find ourselves at odds with this world. And nowhere is this more pronounced than in the reality that we see wickedness flourishing and righteousness that seems to fail. We live in a world that loves darkness. And in that world, it hates righteousness and all who stand for it. We live in a world that loves those who participate with them in sin and hates those who stand for the truth. We live in a world that applauds those who engage in evil and despises those who confront such evil. We live in a world that celebrates wickedness and debauchery and immorality and it scorns those who oppose those things. You know this. You know what it's like living in this sin-sick, fallen world. And sometimes as believers, it feels like the wicked always prosper and the righteous always struggle. There's an entire psalm devoted to that reality. It's Psalm 73. If you're struggling with that, I would encourage you someday to go there. Sometimes it just feels like the wicked always prosper, that they're always thriving. They're free of pain. They're well-fed. They're living a trouble-free life, and they have no consequences for it. And on the flip side, so often it feels like we, the righteous, who are laboring to know the Lord and love the Lord and live godly lives, it feels so often that we live in this corrupt world and we're being shamed for that and ridiculed for that and mocked for those things. So often it feels like we live in an unfair world. And if we're not careful, that can breed cynicism and bitterness, and envy, and for some, it leads to a spiritual crisis. How in the world can wickedness triumph, and how in the world can righteousness be dismissed? This is the world we live in. And it's going to be that way until Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. And we need reminders periodically that in the end, righteousness will prevail. And we need reminders periodically of the fact that wickedness will be judged. That day is coming. But until that day comes, we're going to continue to sense this struggle. 
And as we come to Matthew 14 this morning, that becomes very obvious. One of the things I love about our study of Matthew so far is the fact that Matthew arranges his material so carefully. Here's what I mean by this. You have been with us, I trust, for the last few months, and you were with us when we came through Matthew 13, all those parables of the kingdom where Jesus predicted that there would be opposition in his kingdom, in this phase of his kingdom. And we saw this in the parable of the soils, four kinds of heart. Only one reflects the heart of a true believer. The other three reflect varying levels of opposition. We saw this in the parable of the wheat and the tares, that there are believers and unbelievers who grow up next to each other, who, who coexist with one another in this world, and one day they will be separated at the end of the age. We saw this in the parable of the dragnet as well, that the righteous and the wicked dwell together during this period, but a net is coming, a judgment is coming that will separate them. So Jesus in Matthew 13 has been teaching us that there will be opposition and we must experience that and we must anticipate that. What I love about what Matthew does is coming out of those parables, he illustrates those very realities. We saw one illustration at the end of chapter 13. Go there for just a moment. Look at the very end of chapter 13. Jesus has just finished preaching these parables. And the very first account after he finishes the parables is an illustration of the very realities that he just spoke about. He goes to his hometown and what does he meet with? Opposition. He goes to the one place where you think he'd be welcomed and he's met with opposition. Look at verse 54 of chapter 13. It says, he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where does man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get these things? And then verse 57, they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Very first account, coming out of the parables of the kingdom where he said there's going to be opposition, is he tells us, Matthew does, Jesus meets with that opposition in his own hometown. This morning we come to Matthew 14. We meet another illustration of the same reality. It involves John the Baptist. This morning we see the murder of the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And opposition to John signaled ultimately opposition to Christ himself. You'll remember, of course, who John the Baptist was. He was the forerunner. He was the one sent ahead of Jesus to prepare the way. He was the voice in the wilderness crying out, saying, prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare your hearts for the coming of the Messiah. He was sent ahead of Christ to draw attention to Christ, to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of their Savior. You may remember back in Matthew chapter 11, we, see, we saw him imprisoned. He's thrown into jail. This morning you're going to learn how he died. 
And we're going to see that opposition to Christ comes from a variety of fronts. It comes from family. And it comes from religious establishments. And it comes from governing authorities. Let me read the first 12 verses of Matthew 14 because this one illustrates how opposition comes from governing authorities. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, and he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. How's that for your devotions in the morning? It's a sad account. One writer has said of this text, this true account is more incredible than the most bizarre soap opera. It is a story of infidelity, divorce, remarriage, incest, political intrigue, jealousy, spite, revenge, lewdness, lust, cold-heartedness, cruelty, brutality, violence, ungodly remorse, and godly mourning. But above all, it is the story of godless fear and the power of such fear to confuse, deceive, corrupt, destroy, and damn. It's a shocking account. And it really illustrates not just the hatred that the world had for John the Baptist, but the hatred the world has for Christ and anyone who follows him. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to walk you through this passage. And then I want to give you some implications at the end. All right, so no outline. We're just going to walk through it. And I just want to explain this text to you. And then at the end, I want to give you some specific implications that we can learn from this really fascinating passage. Let's dive into this. Verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. So we meet a man named Herod. And let me just tell you, every single time you meet a Herod in the Bible, you need to ask the question, which one? (laughs) There's all kinds of them. Uh, So we need to define who this Herod is. This is not Herod the Great. 
You may remember back in chapter 2 of Matthew that we met him. He was the king when Jesus was born. He ruled from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. We believe Jesus was born about 4 to 5 B.C. And so he was the ruler when Christ was born. That was Herod the Great. He was the king who was on the throne in that area who tried to kill Christ. Remember all the babies slain around Bethlehem? two years old and under as he tried to murder Christ. That was Herod the Great. He was a wicked king. He had his wife murdered. He had three of his sons killed as they threatened his throne. He was a wicked man. That was Herod the Great. That's not this Herod. This is Herod Antipas. This is one of Herod the Great's sons. He had seven of them. He murdered three of them. Four remain. This is one of them. This is Herod Antipas. And he's called here the Tetrarch, which is a title for a ruler over a fourth of a kingdom. Tetra for Arche, ruler. He's the ruler over a fourth of a kingdom. That's the technical definition of the term, but it came to mean just a lesser known prince or governor. There was a hierarchy. There was the emperor, then below him were kings, then below him were ethnarchs. And below them were tetrarchs. This is Herod Antipas. He is a tetrarch. Now let me tell you that when King Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided up into three parts. Given to three of his four sons. Let me list them for you. Archelaus was made an ethnarch over the southern part of Palestine. Then there was another son, Herod Philip, who was made tetrarch over the northern part of Palestine. And then there's Herod Antipas, this Herod who was made a tetrarch over Galilee and Perea, which is a region between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. So he's the king or the governor over the region of Galilee, which is where Jesus conducted most of his ministry, and over Perea, which is where John the Baptist ministered. So he's the king who's ministering or ruling at the time of John the Baptist's ministry and at the time of Jesus' public ministry. This is the Herod who Jesus appeared to in his trial just before his crucifixion. This is Herod Antipas. He's a wicked man like his father, and he's a weak man, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. Notice verse 1. It says, he heard the news about Jesus. We don't believe that at this point they had ever met Herod and Jesus. They were in the same region. Herod lived in Tiberias, a Roman city on the southern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus never really went there. He centered his ministry on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. We don't believe they ever met, but Herod is hearing about Jesus. And he's hearing about his ministry, and he's hearing about his works, and he's hearing about his miraculous displays of power. And so he's getting worried. Verse 2. He said to his servants, This is John the Baptist, and he has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Strange explanation, isn't it? He hears about Jesus... And his immediate reaction is, this must be John the Baptist who is raised from the dead. The reason he's believing that, for one reason, is that he is the one who put John the Baptist to death. 
And so as he hears about Jesus, he says, this must be John the Baptist who has now been raised back to life. We don't know exactly why he equated the two, but he believes that in some way, some fashion, Jesus is a re-resurrected John the Baptist. And somehow in his mind, that gave him powers, that gave Jesus miraculous powers. And he thought that if he really was John raised from the dead, somehow the miracles that Jesus did were explained that way. And so you can see there's some fear in his heart. He's the one who killed John the Baptist, which we're going to see in just a moment. And now Jesus is ministering and he's doing all kinds of miraculous things and he knows he's done something wrong. He's guilty, and he's superstitious, and he's fearful. Then starting in verse 3, Matthew backtracks, and he fills in the gap for us. We believe that John the Baptist was murdered about a year before this. And so Matthew goes back and tells us the story about how John the Baptist was killed, and that's what we begin with in verse 3. So this is a flashback. Verse 3, for when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother, Philip. All right, here's what I need you to do. You need to put your thinking caps on for just a moment because I need to try to explain probably the most messy family tree that has ever existed. All right, so you have to track with me. Stay with me for just a moment. Because you have to understand who Herodias is and who Philip is and how this all fits together, right? So here we go. Are you ready? Herod the Great had seven sons. He killed three of them. One of them was named Aristobulus. Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. That's who's listed here in this verse. Herodias is a granddaughter of Herod the Great. And one of Herod the Great's other sons, not Aristobulus, but his half-brother Philip married Aristobulus's daughter. Are you tracking with me? So Herod Philip, a son of Herod the Great, a half-brother of Aristobulus, married his niece. She married his uncle, her uncle. That's one piece that you need to understand. Herod Philip is married to his niece, Herodias, and together they have a daughter named Salome. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. You need to know she was one of the most wicked and perverse women mentioned in Scripture, maybe second only to Jezebel. There's another son. We've already introduced him, Herod Antipas. He's half-brother to Herod Philip and Aristobulus and Archelaus. Herod Antipas marries a princess from Nabatea. Nabatea was a region to the southeast of of the Dead Sea where Petra is. That's the capital city of Nabatea. He married, for political and military reasons, a princess, the daughter of the king of Nabatea. We don't know her name, but Herod Antipas married her. Are you still with me? Herod Philip marries his niece. Herod Antipas marries a princess. After some time, Herod Antipas gets attracted to Herodias, his brother's wife, 
who's his sister-in-law and also his niece. You see how this gets a little confusing? And he seduces her. Away from his half-brother, Philip. And he takes her as his wife. He convinces her to divorce Herod Philip. And he himself divorces his wife, the princess from Nabatea. And so Herod Antipas marries Herodias, who is his brother's wife, which means it's his sister-in-law, who's also his niece. Yeah, scratch your head. This was a mess. Totally against God's law. This was so outside of God's commands, and John the Baptist knew it. The divorce on both parts was unbiblical. The remarriage on both parts was unbiblical. It was an immoral relationship. And added to that, it's incestuous. Herod Philip married Herodias, his niece. That was incestuous. Then they get divorced, and Herod Antipas marries his wife, his sister-in-law, also his niece, and that's incestuous, which is clearly prohibited in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18.16 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. Leviticus 20.21 says the same thing. So in every way, this marriage between Herod Antipas and Herodias is completely against the law of God. And John the Baptist won't stand for it. He's going to say something. Notice verse 4. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Don't you love this? Is this not refreshing? In the midst of this paganism, this worldliness, this immorality, this no regard for the law of God, there is a man who will stand up and who will say, that's not right. That is against the law of God, that is sin, that is evil, that is wickedness. And so John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And by the way, the verb had been saying is imperfect tense, which means it was something that was going on in the past. Meaning he didn't just say it once to Herod Antipas. He repeatedly told this man, what you are doing is wrong. That is sinful. That is against the law of God. And he boldly pointed out, that Herod Antipas was in sin. Do you not love this courage? Fearlessness. Standing before a Roman governor and to his face saying, you are wrong. And calling him to repent. Friends, that's courage. That is boldness. That is like you marching into the White House and calling out sin. As you can imagine, that did not sit well with Herod. Look at verse 5. So although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. Herod wants to kill him. How dare you call me out on this? 
He wants him dead. And all of this is exacerbated by the fact that when Herod Antipas divorced the princess wife, her father, King Aratus, went to war against Herod Antipas. And the only reason Herod Antipas survived is because the Romans came to his defense. And so now any criticism of Herod's second marriage from John would have been like throwing sparks on a dry tinder. And that's why Herod's pretty sensitive about this. He doesn't like this. So he wants him dead. However, there's a piece of this, though, that you need to understand. He, he didn't have the courage to put him to death, one, for his wife, which I'll show you in just a moment. But another reason is because he actually had some respect for John the Baptist. He was fascinated by his teaching and his preaching. And notice, though, did the people. It says that he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. So the people recognized John to be a prophet. They recognized him to be teaching and preaching on behalf of God. And so he doesn't want to upset the people and have an insurrection on his hands. But he's also kind of interested in this guy. Turn over in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Let me show you something. Mark gives us a few more details of this incident than Matthew gives us. Mark chapter 6. Verse 14 describes how he believes that John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Verse 16 He says, John, whom I have beheaded, has risen. Notice verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now notice this. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Now you're in a dilemma. He's kind of uh, interested in this guy, John the Baptist, and he's interested in what he's having to say. So he doesn't really want to put him to death yet, but he's kind of fearful of the people. And notice verse 19, he's afraid of his wife. Herodias had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted to put him to death. So go back to Matthew chapter 14. Do you see the pickle that Herod Antipas is in? He kind of wants him dead, but he's kind of intrigued by him. But he's got his wife chirping in his ear to put him to death. And so for the time being, he throws him in prison. Behind the scenes, Herodias is wanting him dead She's biding her time. She's waiting for the right opportunity, just the right moment to exact her revenge. Now, let me pull the car over a second. This is what the world does when you confront them on their sin. This is typically what happens. When you go to people that you know and you love and you care for them and your heart is burdened for them and you want to see them saved and you want to see them forgiven and you want to spare them of the consequences of their sinful choices and you go to them and you appeal to them and you plead with them and you use the word of God to urge them to repent, this is often the response. How dare you tell me how to live my life? Who are you to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong? 
Does that not sound familiar? Do not we live in an age where everyone does what is right in their own eyes? They hate the truth. They hate the messengers of the truth. They hate those who drag sin out into the light. This is what John is doing. He's dragging their sin out into the light. He's exposing it. He's pointing his bony finger at both of them and saying, what you're doing is wrong, and they don't want to hear it. Reminds me of John 3, verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. When Julie and I were first married, we lived in a motel room, essentially on Brooks Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas, for about four months. And we shared a little kitchenette with the room next to us. And living under the cupboards in that little kitchenette was a very large cockroach. And he'd come out at night, and we'd hear him scurrying around in there. And every time we flipped the light on, He'd scurry back under his little safe corner of the cabinet because he hated the light. That's what the world does. You expose the sin of the world. You call people to repentance with the truth and they will hate you for it. That's the world we live in. Well, Herodias is just biding her time. She's waiting for just the right moment to exact her revenge against John the Baptist. Notice verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Herod threw himself a birthday party. He's a megalomaniac. I'm going to throw a party for myself. And he invited all of his friends, and it's a drunken fest, and there's food, and there's drinking, and there's dancing. And his stepdaughter, remember I said Herodias was originally married to Herod Philip, and they had a daughter named Salome. That's this individual here. His stepdaughter, the daughter of Herodias, dances before him. This is not normally what it would have taken place. Normally it was slave girls who did the dancing, but in this moment it was her. She danced. It was probably a fairly immoral scene. You can imagine drunken men in a party scene and a young woman dancing in what was probably a fairly seductive fashion. It says that she pleased Herod, which is probably a euphemism for him being aroused by her dance. So pleased was he by this that he did something very foolish. Verse 7. He was so pleased by this dance that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. So he makes her a promise. You can have whatever you ask. Mark 6 adds the fact that he said, you can have up to half my kingdom. He's willing to give her whatever she wants in appreciation for her dancing. And verse 8 says, having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. 
Mark 6 adds the fact that when Herod made this promise to her, she went and asked her mother, Herodias, what shall I ask for? And she, her mother, said, the head of John the Baptist. Sad, isn't it, that Herodias had no qualms about using her daughter to get what she wanted. So she makes the request, give me John the Baptist's head. Herod's now in a greater problem. Verse 9, although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. Two things weighed on his heart in this moment. Number one, he made a promise. A very foolish one. Number two, he had dinner guests. And he wasn't about to be humiliated in front of his dinner guests. He wasn't going to be embarrassed. He's not going to break his word in front of them. And so, verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in prison. He gave the order. He sends for the head of John the Baptist and his cronies go and saw the head of John the Baptist off. Verse 11, his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. It's a pretty gruesome image, isn't it? A bloodied head on a platter being given to Salome who then passes it to her mother. Verse 12, his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. This is the greatest man who's ever lived outside of Christ. Remember what Jesus said of him in Matthew eleven eleven: No one greater than this man. And this is how he ends his life. The greatest Old Testament prophet dies, <coughs> murdered, because he stood for the truth. It's another illustration of the rejection of Christ. Not only are they opposed to him, they're opposed to his forerunner. And so all of this is handwriting on the wall for Jesus. If this is how they treat his forerunner, if this is how they they deal with the one who announced his arrival, how are they going to deal with him? And so there's the story. What are some things we learned from this? Let me give you, as we wrap things up here, three implications. We'll put them up on the slides for you. Three implications of this. What are some lessons that we can take away from this? Number one is the expectation of relentless opposition. Lesson number one is the expectation of relentless opposition. This account teaches us what the world thinks of the truth. This this account teaches us what the world thinks of Christ. This account tells us how the world perceives those who stand for the gospel, who stand for the Lord, and who stand for the truth. They will, the righteous, will often face resistance from the world. 
This is how they treated Christ. This is how they treated John the Baptist. And by the way, notice the three fronts. This is kind of a bigger scope picture, but notice the three fronts that Jesus has been facing persecution from. Notice it first started with the religious establishment. Where does the first waves of persecution come against Christ? It comes from the religious people, the religious community. They're the ones who initiate this opposition and rejection to Christ. And then notice where did it come from? End of chapter 13, it came from his family. And now where is it coming from? The government. Beloved, we need to expect the same things. We need to expect opposition. We need to understand that this is how the world treats those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I need to expect persecution and opposition from the same three fronts. There are going to be times when we are persecuted and opposed by those who claim to stand for Christ and claim to be the church. And there will be liberal branches of the religious community that call faithful, believing followers of the Lord Jesus Christ out. Sometimes you're going to face this opposition from your family. You saw that in Matthew chapter 10. There were words from Jesus where he said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. You're going to have to face opposition like this at times from your family. You're going to have to take some of the hits. If you're going to stand for Christ, and if you're going to stand for the gospel, and if you're going to stand for the truth, then you're going to have to likely experience what Jesus experienced. Opposition from his own family. And thirdly, you're going to have to expect it from the government. You're going to have to expect, as this text realizes, shows, and proves, that there will be leaders, leaders, governmental officials, those at the highest levels of the state who will actively oppose those who stand for Christ. And you must expect this. By God's grace, we still won't deal with that as other countries do, but we saw glimpses of it during COVID, didn't we? As the government begins to call Christians hate groups, these are the realities of being a believer in a very fallen world. So please don't expect this world to applaud you. Please don't expect this world to put their hands on your back and slap you on the back and say, man, you're, you're doing great. Don't expect that. You need to expect the opposite. From this world, in its various fronts, we will expect to receive opposition and persecution as Jesus and John the Baptist and many others have faced. Lesson number two is the danger of a guilty conscience. The danger of a guilty conscience. Now let me just say, in some senses, a guilty conscience is a good thing. Your conscience is essentially their soul's warning system. It's not perfect. It needs to be fed truth. It needs to be pumped full of truth in order for it to operate correctly. But everyone has a conscience, and the conscience is God's gift to us, in a sense, to help us discern between right and wrong. Romans chapter 2 says it alternately accuses us or defends us. And you can listen to that conscience, and that's a good thing. That's the blessing of a guilty conscience, but there is a danger of having a guilty conscience. It's when you turn it off and you silence it. 
This is what Herod did. Just think for just a moment, what must have been weighing on his conscience? He divorced his first wife. He seduced his brother's wife. He wrongly imprisons John. He wasn't strong enough to stand up to his wicked wife. He made a horrible and foolish vow. He consented to John's murder without any trial. And he knew he was a righteous man. And he knew that ordering his execution was an evil act. And he ended up putting to death an innocent and righteous man. How do you sleep at night? With all of that weighing on your conscience. I have to imagine that for Herod Antipas, he was racked with guilt. I have to imagine this man was so troubled and so fearful of final judgment. He had to have known what he was doing was wrong. He had to have a sense of of guilt and weightiness over the fact that he was doing wrong at all levels of his life. And it had to contribute to his fear and an overriding sense of what happens at the end of life. I just have to imagine his conscience was going off and sounding the alarm and he had a choice. He could either listen to that or he could turn it off and silence it. And that's what he chose to do. This is what wicked people do. Sometimes as believers, we can fall into this trap. Our conscience is going off. It's the warning light on your dash, and it's saying, wrong, wrong, wrong. You're sinning. You shouldn't do this. Stop. And sometimes as believers, we shut it off, and we turn it off. And when that happens, you sear your conscience. A guilty conscience is a powerful thing. It is a good thing. It's not good that we're sinning. It's not good that we're engaging in sin. But a guilty conscience is God's gift to us. It enables us to understand when we've fallen into sin and when we're disobeying his law. And so that's God's warning to us. Listen, pay attention. Don't go down this road. Stop, repent, turn back. So the question I want to pose to you this morning is, is are you here today with a guilty conscience? If so, what are you doing with it? You see, the good news for us as believers is that Jesus cleanses our conscience. Listen to Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's what Christ does. He takes us who have guilty consciences. We come to him, we repent, we embrace him as Lord and Savior, and he washes those consciences clean. That's the gospel. is the joy of knowing Christ as he, he does that. This morning, Psalm 32 was referenced as we began our service. What, what happens when we confess our sin to the Lord? What happens? There's this flooding of joy. There's a refreshment to our heart when we know our sins are not imputed to us. 
maybe some of you here are here this morning and, and you're here with a guilty conscience. And, and you've done some things this week or you have committed some sins this week that you don't want anyone to know about. And you just want to bury it. And you just want it to go away. A guilty conscience is God's gift to you when it leads you to repentance. So my friends, don't silence it. Don't turn it off. Pay attention to it. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, that is his warning to you. That is his kindness to you to run to Christ, to embrace Christ, to know Christ, to exchange your sin for his righteousness when he cleanses your conscience and gives you a new heart and enables you to be free from the sin that has controlled and dominated your life. That's the gospel. So is your conscience clear this morning? Number three, there's a third lesson we learn here is the need for courageous confrontation. The need for courageous confrontation. I love the example of John the Baptist. Here's a man who is standing before a king, a ruler, a sovereign, a governmental official, and he is unfazed. He is unconcerned. He doesn't care who his audience is. He doesn't care if it's the poorest person who's come out into the desert to see him or if he's standing in the royal courts before the king of the land. It doesn't matter. Here's a man who's willing to stand for the truth. Here's a man willing to confront sin wherever it was, by whomever it was committed, even a king in authority. He's willing even to forfeit his life rather than forfeit the truth. He was bold, he was outspoken, he was Mr. Valiant for truth, he did not cower before worldly powers, with courage and boldness he stood before the king and said, you are wrong. I love what A.T. Robertson says, he says it cost him his head. But it's better to have a head like John the Baptist and lose it than to have an ordinary head and keep it. <laughs> this is what godly people do. This is what Moses did before Pharaoh. This is what Elijah did before King Ahab. This is what Daniel did before Nebuchadnezzar. This is what John the Baptist did before Herod Antipas. This is what godly people do. No matter the cost, no matter who the audience is. Now listen, this is not an excuse to be offensive. This is not an excuse to be obnoxious. This is not an excuse to be mean or cruel or rude or unkind. So hear me say it very clearly. This is not a pass for us as the believers to somehow be obnoxious in how we handle the truth. But it is an example to us of what it looks like to stand for the truth in the face of opposition. And my question to you this morning is, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to do this? Are you willing to stand before your family? 
And you watch them committing sin after sin after sin and falling into patterns of sin and violating clear violations of the word of God. Are you willing to say something? Oh, I, I just don't want to. I don't want to upset the apple cart. I, don't, I want to be loving. But believer, listen to me. The most loving thing you can do is to speak the truth. The most loving thing you can do is exhort them to submit to the word of God and to point them to Christ. That's loving. It's not loving to sweep it under the rug. It's not loving to pretend it didn't happen. And it's not loving to just to gloss over it. That's cowardice. So will you speak the truth? To those in your family, to those in your workplaces, to those in your schools, Are you willing to withstand those in positions of authority when there are clear violations of the word of God? Say, why do we do this? To be mean? No. To be right? No. To come out on top? No. Why do we say these things? Because we want to see people saved. And the good news means nothing if you never get to the bad news. So start with the bad news. Point out sin. Call it out kindly, graciously. Stand for the truth. Drag that sin into the light and point them to Christ. Because people need to know that they've done, what they've done is unlawful, that's condemned by Scripture. And only then can you point them to the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need more people like this. The church is going soft. We need to be a people who are willing to stand on the truth, who are willing to count the cost, even if it means our lives, because the truth is more important than our lives. So will you be courageous like John? Who are the people in your life right now that you need to speak truth to? Who are the people in your life right now that you need to have a hard conversation with? Who are the people in your life that you need to show them what the truth of the scriptures say for their good, for their eternity? May God give us grace to be like John the Baptist. Amen? Father, we thank you for these realities. These are important truths for us to hear. They're hard to hear, Lord, because we live in a difficult age. We live in a world that does not love the truth. We live in a world that hates the truth and hates those who bear the truth. And so, Lord, we pray and ask and plead with you that you'll help us to be like John the Baptist. When we feel ourselves caving under fear, when we feel ourselves wanting to avoid those hard conversations, Lord, give us grace. And help us to be exceedingly kind and gentle. For Lord, if there are any here this morning whose consciences are guilty, we pray that you would use that to drive them to the cross. Drive them to Christ. And let them experience the joy and the liberation of a clean conscience. Cleansed by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, for whatever opposition we encounter, whatever rejection we experience, whatever persecution we might face for being faithful followers of Christ in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, give us strength. Let us stand firm. Let us not waver in the face of opposition. 
Let us bring favor to our Savior and honor to your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.